Hi, everybody. It's Jonah Pallone, and welcome to Owner Operated, conversations with small business millionaires. If you're interested in learning about the stories of American small business owners and why small business is great for our country, this is the podcast for you. In my role at Midstreet, helping people sell their companies throughout the Southeast, I've been fortunate enough to get a behind-the-scenes look at the lives and organizations of hundreds of business owners. I created Owner Operated to let you in behind the curtain. Follow me on this journey and subscribe to my newsletter at jonahpalone.com. In this episode, I spoke with John Rumsey, co-owner of RHA Wealth in Raleigh. I found John relevant to have on the show since he's in the process of building his own small business, and he's been working with business owners and families for years. We talked about small business, and he shared some practical financial tips for success, along with how to save money, his view on cryptocurrency, and he even answered some tough questions that I had, like, why should I invest in a 401k? Enjoy. John, thanks so much for being on Owner Operated. Glad to have you. Thanks for having me. Let's just start with your story and your background. Share what brought you into what you do today in RHA Wealth. Yeah. So a little bit of background. So right now, I'm co-founder and managing partner for RHA Wealth. And it really started probably back in 09 and graduated and was going off, thought I was going to be a professor someday, was super excited about getting into academia, um, but started the working world with Merrill Lynch and started to work in the advisor section and fell in love with the idea that that gave me the opportunity to still teach that for most of what advising is, is you're simply just teaching financial concepts to people that don't quite understand them. You're trying to simplify the idea. And so I worked through the structure at Merrill and landed in Raleigh about 10 years ago and still grew a practice here, uh, became more involved in community, um, teamed with some other partners of a similar age. And so that was very helpful for me. And, and it allowed us to have more of a modernized view of where we thought the industry was heading. And then about shortly after uh, COVID-19 hit and everybody went virtual, we really saw the, the growth of what it meant to be an advisor that could be in one location serving many people, uh, either in person, virtually over the phone, and then also what the technology expectations would be in the new world. Um, there's a lot of changes that the industry probably needs to make and is in the, the path to making, but we wanted to jumpstart that. And in order to do that, we wanted to become an independent legal fiduciary institution. So that is RHA Wealth. And what we do is we serve clients, um, both businesses and individuals and families that really have not a plan in place or they don't have a great grasp as to where they're heading, and so we spend time with them to help them identify goals and they use technology to build what should be the most advanced plan that exists to help them understand, are they doing the right things to grow their assets? And is everything working towards what is most meaningful for them? Um, so after that planning part, we take over investment management. Uh, we utilize other partners. So we have some of the best tech partners in the area. And we also have a great custodian through Charles Schwab. And we're able to then serve them on a, on a consistent basis um, reviewing that plan with them, making sure their investments line up. And then we're here as the person that they come to ask any questions that relate to money. So we'll have very advanced, complex investment management questions. And then we'll have the really basic, like, how do I get started? What credit card do I use? Those types of things. So we, we get the spectrum. So John, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show, um, really, and just kind of going back to the theme of owner operated, a lot of the people who will be listening, I'm sure are going to be interested in, you know, understanding what they want to do with their money in the future, uh, if not right now. And so, you know, one of the big other reasons, though, that's, that's kind of unique to you guys in general is just, you took this leap, right into entrepreneurship from working in sort of the corporate world at a, at a large company. So I kind of want to dive deeper into that, if that's okay to start with, was 
Was the impetus for you to start RHA Wealth, was that because you always had sort of a burning desire to do your own thing? You know, I would love to say that it was always our desire. It really, it wasn't, and it's not the industry norm. Um, when you think about it, you know, we were working for a large corporation and there's always the opportunity to go from one large corporation to another large corporation and, and go back and forth. And that's very common in the industry. Um, we've seen people that move from, you know, UBS to Morgan Stanley to Charles Schwab directly, or they go all over. And so I've had clients tell me, yeah, my previous advisor moved two or three times. And so we knew that that existed. It exists for a few reasons. Sometimes people are unhappy where they're at. And so they want the structure of an outside corporation. And so they, they take a buyout and they change their firm and their practice to now be under another corporation. But that didn't really solve the problems for us. So one of the biggest reasons that we wanted to make a change was because we finally wanted to call ourselves legal fiduciaries. And that's just an individual that you're talking to about your finance that really has no conflict of interest when they give you advice. And that was a big driver for us. Walk through that process of having those initial conversations and eventually pulling the trigger and making that that leap to the next step and saying, okay, we're going to actually do this. Yeah. So we had, uh, there were three total partners. There's myself, Robert Hardinger and Clark Abbott. And we were all working together and, and Merrill Lynch, we were referred to as just the Rumsey Hardinger Abbott group. And so individual advisors that work cohesively as a team utilizing the same processes and, and kind of uh, cheering each other on. Um, the time came where we had also led part of the training group and we had seen how the next training advisors were going to be and, and what was out there for someone who wanted to enter the industry. And so when we thought about independence, one of the things that was very exciting to us was that we were also going to not only be able to serve our clients better, but we were going to be able to train advisors coming out of college or people that wanted to enter the industry in a way that we felt was more modernized and the way clients would expect uh, our industry to go. And so we kind of got together, had the discussions. We said that we would be open to the ideas of researching a bit. Um, you know, COVID-19 really helped with this because we were already virtual. We were already used to doing virtual meetings. So it was really easy for us to process demos and to go through presentations that were going to help inform us. Um, and then we finally got to the point where we had to start interviewing how we would do it. Um, one of the biggest risks of a financial advisor going independent is losing their licensing in the process. When we think about a lot of the big names in finance, like Dave Ramsey and Clark Howard, and a lot of the mainstream individuals, they're great and they offer wonderful information. But in the background of things, they're also not necessarily governed by the SEC or what the federal government says a financial advisor should do if they're going to directly manage clients. Um, and that's just a risk we didn't want to take with our clients that they've had this expectation of us that we would always be highly educated and you know, kind of in tune with what the markets are doing and governed to make sure that we're able to make decisions that are in their best interest and not anything else. So we started to interview custodians for our licenses. And that's where the partnership with Sanctuary Wealth popped up. Um, we interviewed a few and Sanctuary Wealth is actually made up predominantly of former uh, employees of Bank America and Merrill. And so they were able to really understand our process, know what our clients were used to and help us be the, the compliance or general counsel for how we were going to transition. Um, so it was a pretty easy decision. Uh, once we met them and talked to them, they were very client focused. They wanted to make sure that the people that come over to us were only coming because it was a better experience. And that was the number one thing that we wanted to stress to our clients. Got it. Okay. And how long did that transition process take going from Merrill to, you know, independent 
RHA? How, how long did it take to set up? Um, was there some overlap time? You know, while you were working, were you kind of working on the business in your extra free time or you know, how long did that whole process take? Yeah. Like without getting into too much of the specifics, um, just we did continue to work with Merrill and we did serve our company very well and, and do what we were asked to do. Yeah. The idea and the concept probably had to develop over the course of six months and the real work took place like three to four months as we fed into interviewing uh, technologies and understanding what we were going to do. And you really can't work in two spaces. You have to very much just have an idea of it. And then the day that you leave, that's when the real work starts. And so um, we exited on March 26th and that's when RHA Wealth started. And we just took off after that. That's awesome, man. Um, so talk about what some of the things you guys are doing that some freedoms that you now have because you're not part of that larger company with its own processes and procedures, right? So you, you mentioned technology a lot. Maybe talk through some of the things that you guys are doing differently. I think it's cool how you guys are virtually set up to, you know, so talk through just kind of how you've set the company up and some of the things that, that, that you've been able to do now that you've left. Sure. So our company currently consists of five individuals. We have three lead advisors and partners. That's Clark Abbott, Robbie Hardinger, and myself. Um, we all have a different focus from a managerial standpoint. And so I head up a lot of the integration. And so making sure that things work and talk to each other, the processes are in place, the vision is set. Um, Clark focuses a lot on business development and marketing. And he's just really gifted in that and can understand how we interact with clients and how to make sure that our name is out there, that we stay top of mind. Uh, and Robbie is more on the investments and finance side. So he does the, from a business standpoint, all of our finances, but then also helps us understand what investments we should be using for our clients as recommendations. Um, Ashley Russian, she's going to be our senior wealth registered associate. And so she's an individual that runs all of our operations. So as soon as somebody says, yes, I'd like to work with you, she takes over to make sure that that experience of onboarding and getting everybody up and running into RHA Wealth is good. All the paperwork involved, all the processes of distributing assets and transferring. And then we've recently brought on Anna Lee. And so Anna Lee Pascal is going to be our client experience assistant. And so she's the, the culmination of our team's focus in that the client experience is the most important part when people come to join our firm. And, and we want to make sure that um, they're just being taken care of and felt like they're not just a number. They're very much a part of a growth uh, company that just really admires um, the interactions that we have with people. And so making sure that people are informed and followed up with and confirmed and uh, online and able to use the tools are very important. Got it. And so, so when you're making recommendations to clients, so, so I guess just describe, so you're a financial advisor, right? Let's back up to that. Let's say I'm a I'm a business owner and, and I come to you guys and say, you know, hey, I'm considering working with you. What are some of the reasons why I would come to you? You know, is it because I recently sold my business? Am I thinking about selling a company? Do I just have extra money to deploy? And then kind of walk me through just a typical, you know, intro conversation. How does that how does that work? How do be how do people get connected to you guys? Yeah, it's a it's a great question. It's a very loaded question, and it's one that we ask ourselves all the time. <clears throat> we are we're very keen on trying to go back and say, you know, how do clients meet us? How do we make sure that that repeats itself? And, and we ask ourselves this a lot. What it comes down to is typically if we've done a good job for people, um, we're always top of mind to them. So that when they're on the community, if they're you know owning a business or they're in their network and somebody around them says, Hey, I have a question about X. And sometimes that X is, you know, am I doing the right things in my retirement? Am I sending my kids to college and saving for that enough? Am I changing homes and understand the impact of that? Am I selling a business? It's the spectrum. But when it relates to their finances, our goal is that when someone has that question, 
that question pops up around somebody else that we're serving and that that client of ours feels very comfortable to say, hey, you should really go talk to John, Robbie or Clark and and have that conversation with them. Um, ideally, one of the things that separates us from a lot of other advisors is we are very planning focused. And that that term planning uh, is unfortunately not as synonymous as we think it is. It's, it's utilized all over the place, but it's very rare that a financial advisor actually writes a plan for a client, explains that plan to them, and then invest according to that plan. Uh, we've talked to so many people that say, well, I've got a financial planner. And our follow-up question is always, well, great. Can we see a copy of your plan? And you know, you walk us through it and that way we can make sure you're doing the right things. And unfortunately they never can. There, there was never a document generated. There was never an education session that took place. And so that is really the differentiator between us is before we invest a client, we write a plan for them. And that plan should show everything they're doing now it should show what's personal to them, what goals have they set for themselves. And if they haven't set it, we want to spend time with them talking about them. Um, most people that come to us really don't know what they're trying to do with their money. And that's okay. Uh, they need to utilize us almost like a therapy session where we're helping coach them through, uh, whether it's a married couple or somebody that's fresh out of college or someone that's worked in a business for four years and hasn't thought about what the next steps might look like. We're going to walk them through just some general guidelines and experiences that we have with people to help them form what's most important to them. Um, so we have an intro call and we talk to them about our process. And then we usually set up kind of a, a data call. And that call is really to help them clarify what they're trying to say in more mathematical and financial terms. And then we do a plan review. And in that plan review, we'll give recommendations on it. And we just put it very basic. We say, if we were you, based on what we know, this is what we would do. And we make our recommendations that way. And that happens before anything gets invested, which we think is the most important part. And is that stuff, you know, are those recommendations primarily around where to invest your money? Or is it also relate to, you know, man, you know, should I sell my house now? Or what are the tax implications? And I've always wondered kind of how you guys work with other different advisors, right? So, so when I think about this, I think about, okay, well, you know, I'd like, I, you know, in the future for me, I'd like to have a team of folks who work with me to make my investments, right? Maybe 20 years down the line, whatever that is, right? So one of those players is probably going to be an attorney that specializes in transactions. One of those players is probably going to be a CPA. One of those players is probably going to be, you know, a financial advisor or a group, right? How do you guys work with financial, you know, with other uh, professionals? And do you guys have sort of, is it all sort of in-house or like, how does kind of walk me through that a little bit? I'm, I'm kind of confused how that works. Yeah. So um, as a concept, we would be somebody that's on your team, like what you're talking about. We don't give legal or tax advice. We understand enough of it to know when to recommend that those professionals step in and give their advice. So examples of that might be, you mentioned, you know, buying and selling a house. Um, we would write a plan that's going to help you better understand if you were to do that, what are the financial implications? Uh, we could then look at it and say, you know, would you pay capital gains tax? Would you not roughly? But at that point, we would say we want a CPA to really review this to give you specifics. Um, we can look at your estate and say, you know, if you keep doing what you're doing, this is going to be very sizable. If you're married with kids, have you thought through how this passes down? We think you might want to go have an estate planning conversation with an attorney so they can better instruct you on should you set up a trust and is that going to meet your personal goals? Yeah. In terms of the how and what to invest in, we focus a lot of the upfront time on the how. So we focus a lot on, are you doing the basic fundamentals that we know are going to set you up for success? And that could be just passive investing in the markets, uh, long-term over a 30-year period. What is that supposed to look like? And once we understand that piece, and once we know your, your strategy behind how you're going to plan to grow your wealth, 
then we can go back and say, well, then based on today's current market conditions and what we see over the next 18 to 36 months, this is the tactical allocation that we would use to make sure that your how comes true. Got it. Okay. And John, I, you know, I was just thinking about this. I, I have to point it out. It's, it's hilarious to me that your name is so similar to Dave Ramsey's. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> You're the you're the Raleigh Dave Ramsey, but so so just kind of going along those lines, and I saw a LinkedIn post from you I think last week about you know, just some advice that Dave Ramsey had that you that you agreed with. What are some practical tips for the everyday person um, who has some money saved and is looking to figure out what to do with it? You know, what are just some kind of practical tips that you've found through through your time in giving financial advice that you would be able to recommend to people, kind of just generally? Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. So a lot of times when I ask people, they ask me how to spell my last name. I always say Ramsey, but with a U. Um, and they'll, they'll typically get it down. And Dave Ramsey is one of the ones that people will ask me a lot, uh, especially since um, I've attended his classes and I know his Financial Peace University and, and I you know listen to his podcast occasionally. And so it was one of those things that when I started in the career, there's almost an arrogance about once you become a financial advisor, you would assume all other financial advisors are wrong. And that's just, that's the yeah. truth that's unfortunate. And I was in that bucket. And so it actually took a friend of mine from church to say, hey, you and your wife should really go through it so that you can understand it so that you can also teach it if you agree with it. So we did, and it was really kind of a change for us. It was really interesting to see what the majority and what the masses were listening to as really solid advice that aligned with what a financial advisor should be saying. Um, so his basic seven steps is, you know, make sure you have an emergency savings. So we start there. I can't tell you the number of people that come to me that ask about like Bitcoin or all that stuff and they don't have an emergency savings. Yeah. You're like, wow, like that's do that first. Uh, can you just take on the burden of loss of income for a while or have you set yourself up for that? Uh, credit card debt. So next one would be paying down. Well, John, let me just stop yeah. you real quick. How much of an emergency fund? I mean, it, does it depend on, it obviously depends a little bit on the person, but what do they recommend in terms of emergency fund? Sure. So this is, again, I will differ a little bit from Dave. Um, I'll just use personal experiences. So I know on his, it's about setting up a thousand dollar emergency fund and then focusing everything on high interest debt. Our thing is that when you look at investing and for most people that we talk to, they do have assets in different places. And so we're trying to make sure they have enough cash. Emergency fund for us, if defined properly, it's your least attractive account. It's cash. It, the people that say like, well, I've got stock that I know I could sell. The purpose of the emergency fund is when the markets are down and you've lost your job from downsizing and you now have to provide to pay your bills, you don't wanna be selling investments that time. You wanna have that very unattractive account that's cash that you're going to to ride out that short-term storm. And you would set the, the amount based on just how um, intricate your job is, how likely is it that you could turn around and get a, a job of similar pay. So you always hear that three to six months and it throws people off because they're like, well, is it three or is it six? And we would say, well, if your job is easy to get another position, if you feel like I have a very kind of low entry to barrier position, um, then you can have three months of emergency savings. That's about how long it'll take for you to apply, interview, get started and get your new paycheck. But if you have a position that's really unique and it might even require you know, moving to another city or somewhere else, then you want to have six months knowing that that might take you a much longer time. Or if you're a highly paid executive and you feel like another position might be a big step down for you if you ever got let go, then build up six months that you can kind of go through that wave. 
And is it six months of current level expenses or is it six months of kind of, all right, we're going to reduce, we're not going to go to the movies. We're not, you know, we're, we're going to change the gym membership to working out at home. You know, how does that, how does that play into it? Cause that's a pretty big difference. Yeah. So you're exactly right. My wife and I have, what is our current budget and then what is our emergency budget? So what is the lifestyle we would live if things went South? And so I tell people to, to understand that number and that's what you should do your three to six months off of. It's all your fixed expenses, but then also the variables, at least to the level that you know, you would still have to maintain your groceries and all of those things. Got it. Okay. I'm sorry to interrupt that, uh, that no, step, but I've always been curious. So step one. <laughs> <laughs> and so yeah, that's step one. I mean, you know, I think it's so important and I hone in on it just because people don't do it. And it, it's one of the things that you need to have it because when the time comes that you, you don't have it, um, I can almost guarantee everybody on this earth at some point will have an emergency that needs to have savings like that. Absolutely. 90% of people will use an asset that they shouldn't be using to pay for that emergency. Um, yeah, you know, it's an interesting topic, John, because I've got a buddy who prefers to have his emergency fund in the market and his argument is just, you know, I'm not investing in really risky things. And if something happens, um, I'll just take the hit. I'll, I'll need to anyway, you know, and I rather, I'm probably not going to have to ever use it. And, you know, because of the job that he has and the money that he saved and, you know, it is what it is. So it's just always, it's really interesting to hear the differences in opinion. Yeah, it is. Um, now, unfortunately, when people do have emergencies, they haven't saved money for, they'll accrue that high interest debt. So that's the next step. Um, we will ask clients, do you have any debts that are you know, a decent interest that you've got to pay off? And this is really, we think credit cards, but in today's society too, that's student loan debt. Uh, I've got a lot, I've got some clients now that say, well, hey, student loan interest has been in forbearance because of COVID-19. And that's true. But the response should be, well, what are you doing now to pay it down as much as you can yeah. so that when the interest kicks back in, you're not having to worry about it as much. Um, that should be more of a gift for you to, to focus on it more and not so much a reason to put it off. Absolutely agree. Some people are probably hoping that I'll just get paid for them though. So who knows? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, and then this is the third step is really something that we, I differ a little bit with Dave Ramsey. So I still say it's the 15% towards retirement. Um, so his third step is to make sure that 15% of your assets go towards retirement. And that's, that's a loaded number that we help people really figure out how they're doing it. So as an example, it's really common for me to meet a husband and wife and the higher income is saying, oh, I max out my 401k. Well, that's great. And then maybe the lower income spouse is saying, well, I don't do as much because they do a much larger portion. But they've never really sat down and said, well, what percentage of our income is actually going towards retirement? Should we both be doing 15%? Um, and then they'll also say, well, my company matches 5%. Do I include that or not? This is where I differ with Dave. He says, do not include it. And I say that you can include it if it's vested. Because if it's vested and you roll it out, it's going to be yours. So a clear example of this is if you've got a company that matches 5%, you should be putting in 10, letting them put in five. Um, we get into little tertiary questions, like should it be in Roth or traditional? And we can talk about those another time, but really that's where those questions start to pop up is when we look at how much are you putting away? So, so here's, I'm just going to interject this too. The, the other real, so I like Dave Ramsey a lot. Um, uh, you know, obviously he's controversial, but I think one of the big things that some people miss about him is a lot of his advice is really designed for the everyday person, I would say, um, like, you know, his opinions on debt and stuff like that. And I'm, I'm eager to hear your thoughts too. I like Dave. I like what he has to say. And I think that if you followed his advice, you'd have a perfectly fine life. But part of me says that his advice isn't for every single person, right? If you're trying to be like a, an uber successful person, or if you make a significantly higher amount of money, 
I really wonder if if a lot of his advice is right for you. It kind of it kind of seems to depend for me. So I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. No, you're absolutely right. Um, we have to remind ourselves the the reason why Dave Ramsey got very successful is that there were so many people that needed to hear what he has to say that most of the US population cannot afford emergencies. Most of them are not putting towards retirement. Um, A lot of the studies that come out would show that when people go to retire, Social Security is gonna make up over two thirds of what their income is gonna be or more. And so that's a really big issue that he addressed with very basic steps that were understandable. Now we have clients that come to us and say, well, if I make like a lot of money and I have investments, I don't think these things apply. And I would say, man, that might be true. You're right, they don't apply to everybody. But I'm also still amazed that I've had clients that make over a million dollars a year in income but when that when something you know the rug was pulled out from under them they didn't have the savings to cover things oh lifestyles were really high and it was really difficult to maintain and they just killed their investments when they had to go through a one-year job change and stuff like that so being able to refocus on this and saying hey am i using this as a launching pad am i still doing a lot of the fundamentals and then doing a lot of the extra stuff that i think what i could do now as a wealthy person that wants to be successful absolutely yeah and i think there's also you know there's there's two kind of edges there's like a continuum, right? It's not just a black or white um, on or off switch. You know, you could be more on the Dave Ramsey side, but you can also be more on the really kind of what you just described, like being a little bit crazy with your money, the the stereotypical investment banker way of managing your money, which is just spending a whole bunch on houses and cars and things like that. Right. Right. But, but, but there's also sort of a middle ground where you take some of Dave's advice, sort of how you've described what, what, you know, what you like to do. And so, so one of the other questions I've had is, how do you deal with or manage people's money when they have a you know pretty significant interest in investing in real estate? You know, personally for me, I'd love to do a lot of that in the future, um, businesses, real estate, etc. But I also want to invest in the markets and and be a little bit safe in the early stages of your career as a person. I typically think for like myself, I'm going to kind of go more on the put more eggs into one basket than to spread them all out thin and 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 grow slowly. And this depends on everybody's goals and all that sort of thing. So just let me just kind of simplify it. When somebody comes to you and says, you know, John, I, I really do want to invest in the market and I want to be safe, but I want to invest in real estate as well. How do you work with them in those environments? Yeah. So when we think about that as really any type, right? So when people come to us and they say, I want to do what you're doing, but there's also these other things I have interest in. Our job is really to help them feel educated and empowered about making those decisions. Um, I mean, I had somebody this last week that they don't have a dollar in the stock market, but they were wanting to talk to me about making sure that they buy rental properties out on the beach. And my response to them is like, well, you know, if something goes wrong, what, what are you going to do? And then their response yeah. is like, well, it doesn't go wrong. It's real estate and it's safe. So it's, you really have to understand who you're dealing with. Yeah. Um, but in what I like to do is show people what their current state is. So we just say, hey, if you're just doing what you're doing, what does that mean? Uh, will your 401k at work? Here's what it should be in the next 5, 10, 20 years. If you're saving in this account, here's what it should be. And then use that as the foundation for helping you invest in real estate. It'll help you make the decisions easier when you say, you know, I saw this property that I think is going to be around 200,000. I want to use as a rental property. I would need this much for the down payment and probably this much in savings to cover loss of income if I didn't have any tenants. And we would help structure that and help you feel empowered to then go into real estate, knowing that you've kind of taken care of your nest egg. Got it. Yeah. So I think that's the most important piece is to not separate them. And that's what we wanted to do in the technology and planning is to be inclusive of those ideas, but to help you make the idea by seeing is all your other areas taken care of before you take those outside risks. Sell me on this, this question, John. So 401ks, right? 
tell me on why I mean, I, I do you do you change this recommendation per client, or you do pretty much recommend everybody get a four hundred one k if they're in a certain age range? Yeah, so uh, I'm a, I'm a history nerd, so that's why this stuff pops up for me. Like, yeah. when we think about the concept, like pensions were pretty much gone, and that was the way for employers to provide income after the passing of someone or retirement of someone. And then that went away and they started to do employer sponsored plans. So this could be the 401k, 403b, 457, thrift savings plan. They're all the same thing. Just depends on who you work for. And it's just a way for an employer to say, put some tax deferred money to the side to grow so that when you're no longer working here, you've got some money to help provide income. Um, The reasons why we like them is because in most cases, the employer has to offer some type of match, whether you're vested in a year or three years, depends on the company. And that's just free money to you. So if you're investing there and they're going to put money into it for you, that's money you wouldn't have had before. And you're not having to pay taxes on the money until you use it later in life. Um, The current structure with the way the IRS has tax guidelines set up, we still very much like them. Um, And we think that it's the easiest, most disciplined way of setting aside funds. Uh, You know, outside of that, people that are in certain income brackets could do their own IRA or their own Roth IRA. And that's great. The people that can be disciplined to do it in those income brackets, we highly recommend it. But it's actually just easier for someone to click a button that says, meh, put 5% yeah. away and you'll see just how it automatically grows. Yeah. So so my problem with the 401k, and, and I get that it's probably right for most people. I Let's just say, for example, somebody that wants to do investing in the short term into the long term, right? They want to, you know, the next thing they want to buy is, let's say, a, a rental property, for example. Um, and they plan on buying several rental properties, businesses, et cetera. Um, and they plan on investing more into the market. What is 65 years old is so far away for somebody who's in their 20s, right? And so that's that's part of the problem of convincing folks, hey, it's you, you should sash away for retirement. Well, I'm on it. I might not even be alive then, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, so how does that? I mean, obviously, there's there's penalties if you take it out early, severe penalties, right? My thing is man, I, I really could use a lot of that money right now for investments, you know, and, and I have a really hard time parting with that money, even though to your point, there's, there's an, a certain amount of employer match and it's really lucrative for me. I'm thinking, man, it's, it's really lucrative, but it's lucrative when I'm 65. <laughs> I'm hopefully I'm already lucrative by then. <laughs> right. So, I mean, I guess what would you say to me re- related to that? Is it just depend on who you are and kind of what your investment philosophy is or, or does it still make sense for somebody who wants to be really aspirational? Yeah, no, that's a great point. And you're right. You're kind of hitting it on. That's personal to you, right? So um, when we think about people that invest in 401k and don't invest in 401k, most of the people that don't invest in 401k, their reason is not because they have a bunch of other things they're trying to invest in. Their reason is that they're spending the money. Yeah. Uh, they don't want to see 5% going towards an investment versus going towards you know their own pocket. For people that are diligent and say, you know, I would reduce my 401k investment in order to do something else that I think would be profitable, that's when we would go back to your plan and say, well, if you do that, um, here are your options of how it could play out. And we want to show you personally if you're doing it. And that's, we do the the check-ins with clients, so at least annually, but sometimes, you know, every six months or quarterly to make sure that they're staying on track with that idea. Um, but then you have to think, because it's tax deductible, $100 in a 401k is reducing your taxable income. If you receive that income, you're paying income taxes. If you're then investing into something that's taxable, you're going to pay taxes on the capital gains of that investment. And if it's real estate, you might get away with a 1035 exchange. So you, you have to then look at the implications of not utilizing the tax deferred money that's going to grow for a long period of time and what that can turn into. And we would just play out one if scenarios. So clients come to us like you and, and we'd say, hey, if you if you did the 5 or 10%, Here's what it would look like if you chose not to, but reinvest in a different way with tax implications. Here's what it would look like. 
and kind of give you that understanding before making the decision. Got it. Okay. And shameless plug, I wrote a blog um, on the uh, kind of the process of a 1031 exchange on the Midstreet website. So I'll link that in the show notes because you've mentioned it, John. Yeah. Um, okay. So, so keep going with the steps here. I think this is a good way to kind of lay out a lot of the show. I like this. <laughs> so, uh, so the idea, I mean, after that, it talks about larger emergency savings. And so that's where Dave's point is to not be, um, not increase your savings that three to six months until after all your debts are paid down and everything, just to have a basic thousand. I, I would, I would say you've got to still have a larger one in the very beginning, just because stuff happens. And especially in the volatile world we're living in, um, yeah. and then funding the short-term goals. So that's kind of what you're talking about. So really step five is, is discussing, all right, well, do I have a, a kid that's going to go to college and, you know, do I have to save in a 529 plan? Do I want to save money to decide to put a down payment on a real estate purchase? Don't want to change homes later. I've got people that are saving for engagement rings and people that are saving for weddings and people you know, all over the board. Yeah. So we're helping them fund those things after they've taken care of that long-term stuff that they never really think of. Got um, it. And the reason why that works, I mean, it's, you have to think about, yeah, you're really young, but then one day we blink and we're not. And so having actually taken that that due diligence and said, I'm gonna just provide for these long-term things that may or may not happen. I see clients that have just done it for 30, 40 years and they have an immense amount of wealth just simply from the right decision of putting a small amount aside every paycheck. Yeah. And now they're never gonna be financially concerned for the rest of their lives. And they didn't do the crazy investments that people around them would do it. They just did the basic stuff um, and they didn't wait too long to do it. So I think those are important and then refocus on education, home purchase and outside investments. This show is brought to you by Midstreet Mergers and Acquisitions, a business intermediary based out of Raleigh, North Carolina that specializes in selling businesses generating $1 to $25 million in revenue throughout the Southeast. If you own a business and are considering an exit, check out their website and contact them at midstreet.com. That's M-I-D-street.com. Now back to the show. Um, were there any more steps you wanted to cover on that on that list, John? The ones that are like a little bit different. So six and seven, six is pay down all debts. And this is where Dave talks about paying off your mortgage and living mortgage free. Okay. This is one where it is tough because we do have a lot of clients that they will die with mortgages and they do it for mathematical reasons. So when I talk to clients about should you hold mortgage debt, um, we, we discuss the difference between a mathematical answer and a behavioral answer. For some people, the behavioral response is I need to have zero debt. And for some people, their response is, I'm fine with that if it means that my assets are growing more than what a mortgage is costing me. So we try to just talk through our clients and understand who they are as people and how their psyche really is set up in terms of debt and then get the right answer for them. And some people utilize debt to grow in a safe and, and reasonable way, and some people don't. And so we wanna make sure we make the right decision with them. And the last one's living generously. So we do help clients with philanthropic giving, setting up uh, personal foundations or uh, donor advised funds, things like that. Got it. Yeah. And, and just to your point on, on step six, they're kind of paying down your house and living mortgage free. Um, one of the the best classes I ever took at Kenya Flagler was called um, Busy 585 Intro to Real Estate. And in the one of the absolute biggest, take, we learned a lot in that class about real estate, but, but one of the biggest takeaways was when Norman Block was going through how to, sort of the Dave Ramsey type strategy of, of how to pay off houses and, and buy rental properties. But the biggest takeaway for me was when we actually ran the numbers and looked at the amortization tables for, 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 for an example, single family home, um, the amount that you pay off. So you can pay off uh, principal payments for your real estate in advance, you know, especially if it's a single family home that you live in. Right. 
And just understanding that and understanding the process of how you do that and the effects that it can have, of, you know, especially in the first 15 years, um, it's was tremendous. Right. So like, you know, to me, and I'm not a financial advisor, I'm not giving financial advice, but like giving, paying, getting a 15 year mortgage makes absolutely no sense. Uh, if it's, if it's going to be for you to live in versus getting a 30 year mortgage and paying it down quicker and, um, you know, doing it that way, there's just no, there's no real reason the, the payments on the 15 year are going to be way higher. So there's just a lot of takeaways I have, but what, one of the biggest ones was kind of to your point of paying the house off early. can be really advantageous when you compare it, especially like even my parents, right? just comparing it to all the other things they could be doing to invest in. Should they, you know, perfect example scenario. All right. We have a house that we've owned for five to 10 years and we're considering, should we buy another house and rent it out and do that game? Or should we pay more into our current house? What's going to give us a better return? Well, when I ran the numbers with them, it was easily, you know, pay more into their current house. And they didn't have to go through any of the hassle of buying a property, renting it out to tenants and going through that. Now I'd probably do all that for them and help them out. But like, you understand my point, right? Just a very, very interesting um, thing for a lot of people. It actually makes more sense to just pay off your house. Yeah. I mean, and that's, you're right. And it it ends up being very personal. I mean, the example, I've got a six-year-old and a three-year-old. And so my three-year-old is going off to college in 15 years. There's just the personal idea of doing a 15-year refinance and paying off the house before my youngest goes to college. Just for the benefit of thinking I'd have a paid off house when I've got two kids in college and be one less stressor. Um, I'm having two girls in college will be enough stress for me, I'm sure. (laughs) But then there's other clients that they will interest only properties for the rest of their life because they move around a lot and they recognize the appreciation of value and they have other assets that allow them to take that kind of risk. And so that's where we do keep these plans very personal and we don't let it be like a plain vanilla blanket for everyone. Yeah. And also people make different amounts of money and they're they're They have different levels of security with their job. And for you, you probably estimate you say, well, I, I know I can pay this. Right. So, so I totally get it. That's, that's smart. And and that's really kind of the bottom line with a lot of it is just, it's so complicated. I, this podcast, it's, it's almost like I try to have you distill things down into one answer, but it's just not that simple. Right. I don't mean to do that. Um, so John, one of the questions I have, and, and, and this is just kind of in general, as you're going through, life and career and investing and you're thinking about how you want to proceed and and, okay is this a good investment or not who do you go to first i have a friend who who owns a lot of real estate and he he has a sort of a core team that he's assembled of folks he really trusts and he goes to them for advice sort of you know just through making phone calls and setting up meetings um one of the the most crucial elements of that for him is his CPA group that he works with um, to give him tax advice on how to, how to, you know, navigate forward. How would you recommend the tax planning be done? Practically speaking, I mean, for someone like me, for example, right? Like, should I go to, should I use just like the easy, you know, um, whatever the software is, then to it software. Um, I'm forgetting it. Yeah, the TurboTax. TurboTax, right? Should I just use TurboTax because my income is relatively simple? Or should I go to somebody and start that relationship process of, you know, actually going through the tax planning? Is that something that you would recommend to to someone in my position? Yeah. So this is really where, like, I like to ask foundational questions because when you think about it, um, the essence of the financial advice, tax advice, legal advice, all of those things, they just, I would always tell people they come into play when you start to feel uncomfortable. 
Got it. Um, you know, you have to start thinking about when do you feel, and that's different for everyone. So I've had clients that come to us and they've been managing $3 million on their own. And they're like, Hey, you know, I think at this point, I don't feel that comfortable doing it. And then I've got clients that have a $20,000 account that they say, I have no idea what I'm doing. I need help. And so that's where it is really different for everybody. Um, the reality is when you think about where you get your advice, yes, we've got clients that they have like family members that they really trust that are good at stuff or they think that they're financially savvy. They've got friends and so on. I would always just caution because you don't really know if someone that's giving you the advice is good or not. Are they just playing a role? Um, do they always make you think that they're financially successful? Um, we've had a lot of people that look and talk like they're financially successful. And then when we get involved in their finances, realize that's, that is so far from the truth. Yeah. So going to professionals is helpful just because when someone talks to me, it's not just my personal advice. Um, I'm in my mid thirties. And so, you know, you think about, yeah, there's a lot of life experience that still hasn't come to me yet, but I've been able to help people from their nineties all the way down to their early teenage years. And so getting those constant experiences fed to me, gives me the ability to reach back out to someone in different life stages and say, here's what I would do. And when you want to find those people, you go for someone that's really focused on the education piece. Um, RJ Wealth, we, we pride ourselves in the fact that we are nonstop learners. Uh, we all hold different designations in the financial world that we feel very strongly about, the CFP, CWA, uh, Certified Exit Planning Advisor. So we keep up to date on everything so that our clients know that they can call us and we tell them, call us with any question related to your money. Um, that's going to be basic. I mean, what credit card should I get? What account should I open at the bank? What bank should I use? super complex. Like, Hey, yeah, I just yeah. met with my attorney and wrote a trust and I don't know what this means. Can you help me make sure my accounts align with it? Um, and so we want to make sure that people are asking questions to people that are educated and not just, and I hate to say this, not using social media. Um, it is amazing to me, the amount of just pictures that I'll get texted from a post that they say, Hey, I think I should start trading options because of this. And you start thinking, you're like, but you're not, you're not good at that. You're like, you're a, you're a teacher, go be a teacher. It's what your gifts to that. And you're, you're, you know, that's what you should do. Um, people want to change their lives to be wealthy, but instead they yeah. really should just trust people that they give advice on these things. Yeah. That's a really good point, man. And, and it's, it's, you know, I'm even guilty of it too, looking at social media and looking at all these things that are out there and saying, man, am I doing the right thing? You know, it's, it's kind of a slow game that I'm playing. And, you know, in today's day and age, it's kind of, it's sort of sexy to it's, it's weird because in some ways it's sexy to do the short term thing and, and make money really fast, like the entrepreneur car lifestyle thing, but it's also becoming more sexy to, to, to stick it out for the long haul and just grind and put your head down for 10 years and you'll figure, you know, so it, it's just interesting. Uh, Bitcoin and all these other things are coming out and, and there's, I'm um, certainly there's, there's some sound investments, but it's funny how, some folks just kind of change with the tide and it just is what it is. And other folks really stick it out. In my experience, the business owners I've talked to and worked with, those guys and gals, they just stick things out and believe in them. Obviously they adjust when needed, but they don't go with every fad that comes up. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and then that, that type of mentality you'll find is really, um, really coherent with the idea that someone hasn't really defined their personal goals yet. They're kind of latching on to the next thing. Yeah. And that's where that first part of our planning process helps out a lot because we start to, when somebody comes in and we say, well, Hey, what's, you know, what's your goal with your money? And their response is like, well, to make as much money as possible. Like I want to make as much wealth as possible. And you start to tone it back a bit and say, but why? What, and what does that really mean? Are you prepared for what that, what you just said? Right. Yeah. Like what risk are you willing to take with that? And if it doesn't go the way that you want it to, is that personally going to be okay with you? 
Um, and so we really start to focus in and, and have those conversations. Like for me, you know, I'm a business owner in my thirties with partners that I love working with and a team that is just a lot of fun to be around. And that was a big goal for me was to get that independence. Um, but then I also have a wife and two kids and it's really important to me that I provide for them and that, you know, I help provide education for where my girls want to go. Yeah. Uh, I don't think about retirement as much because I love what I do. And a lot of people are in that situation. But I also recognize that something may pop up on, like, out of the ordinary, whether it's healthcare related or, um, you know, a passing early of myself. And am I setting my family up to be okay if that happens? Yeah. So just walking through those personal ideals of what's most important. And then we kind of have it on us that we want to help as many people as we can. We'd love to be generous and, and give away a lot of our assets before passing. And so our plan dictates that and, and talks about you know, what would that look like for us? And what do we need to be doing now to make sure that we can be those people that can help serve others? Yeah. And I think, John, there's some sort of a misconception from some folks about, you know, you know, just wealth management and financial advisory and just you're, oh, you're just, you're investing a lot of wealthy people's money who really don't care about others. They just want to keep being greedy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, you know, I, I kind of understand where some of those themes come from. I get it. I, you know, I, I understand where they're coming from sort of, but at the same time, man, the, the most kind giving people I've ever met are business owners who really cared about the communities that they've helped to build and, you know, want to give back. And like the, the sad fact of it is the most help you can do is really charitable giving in a lot of ways, right? So it's giving and setting up groups and, and, you know, helping organize people and, you know, giving people jobs to do things that are, you know, for good. So I, I really agree with just, just kind of that methodology. I don't mean to go my soapbox here, but <laughs> It's uh, it does kind of aggravate me when I when I hear those kind of narratives. You know what I mean? Yeah, and in some ways they are. You know, they're they're valid in some points. I mean, the world has many examples of where financial advisors in the industry did not do well for the clients, um, yeah. and that's just a, that's a hard truth to to you know speak of. But it's the reality that when you think about the industry in the seventies and eighties, it was stockbrokers and nineties. It didn't really go into financial planning until the early two thousands. And so that transition that an advisor had to make to then become more of a holistic advisor and focus on the family's goals, that's still a fresh idea. And so I would tell people that, yeah, there is good reason to be skeptical of who's managing your money. You certainly should do due diligence. You should check them out on FINRA's broker check. You should ask them very pointed questions and not be afraid to ask them about their education and their background and experience. Um, but there are also really great advisors. Like the, the two people that I serve with, Robbie and Clark, I asked them my for my financial advice. So I would go to them and ask them about the things I'm trying to do in my personal life because I know who they are and I know how ethical they are and, and I trust them with my life savings. And, um, and I think we got encouraged to recognize that as an independent firm, we can train advisors that really want to serve people, that really want to be the voice into someone's life of what to do with their money to make sure their personal goals are achieved. And that became our just mission and how we do this. And, uh, and it's really going to be changing for the industry, I believe. That's awesome, man. I'm, I'm excited to see the growth. I really am. Um, especially because it's, it's a Raleigh guy. <laughs> Raleigh group, right? You can access previous episodes of Owner Operated and sign up for my free weekly newsletter where I summarize topics from each episode and send them straight to your inbox at jonahpalone.com in the show notes. That's jonahpalone.com. And if you like the show, please leave a review and tell a friend to help more people find Owner Operated. Back to the episode. Okay. So, so I got a few last kind of final questions for you here. Um, so the first is you mentioned you're a certified exit planner, right? Right. Walk me through 
some of the just fundamentals. So, so if people don't know, exit planning is preparing your business for a successful sale, whenever that is, whether, whether that's 20 years, five years, one year down the line, what are some of the kind of fundamentals of going through that that certification process that that gave you some takeaways for business owners that when you help them today, it's just kind of the common things. You know, for me, you know, I'm not a certified exit planner, but one of the things we commonly see with owners who come to us is just books that are you know unorganized. You know, accounting um, and the, their financials that are just really unorganized and having to having to piece those together and have buyers get comfortable with that can be really challenging, right? Just as an example, what are some of those other things that 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 you've kind of seen as takeaways for yourself? Yeah, there's there's a lot. Um, I know our team really got focused on it because we had clients that were business owners and we just wanted to serve them well. So we went and did the extra education to understand how we would help them through an exit. And what we found was that most business owners that we would talk to when we first engage with them, a lot of them are saying, hey, I don't know if I'll ever sell or if I do, I'll figure it out when the opportunity presents itself. And at that point, it's kind of too late. So we've gotten those phone calls where someone who's told us for years, they're never going to sell, finally just got a random offer from a strategic partner and they think it's a feasible offer and they now want to figure out should they take it or not. And that's not when we should be involved. Like certainly still call us, but if you want to do this well, we should be years ahead of that. Um, We should be helping clients get involved with the right CPA firm so that they're getting their books correct. So that if they ever did get an offer that they would be ready for it through the due diligence period. And they would be not hit with a bunch of fees and having to find new partners and people they trust to help them with a, probably one of the largest decisions of their life. Um, so I tell business owners, you should always run your business as if it were able to be sold tomorrow, even if you don't want to. Um, you should always know the value of your business and getting evaluation every year so that you just know on paper what you'd be worth so that you're not caught at a loss when somebody presents you with an unsolicited offer and you're wondering what to do. Um, A big piece of this is the network that you're around. So we sponsor the local Raleigh-Durham chapter of the entrepreneurship organization. They are amazing people. It's a great group of business owners in the area. And this is a a global-wide organization, but they have local chapters. And so we did that because we wanted to be there and be a support system for them for all the financial questions that they might have about their company and involve us early before they get through an exit planning issue and and they want to start trying to piece things together at the end. Um, So the first pitfall is we don't see people that have a proper network set up. They're not talking to a lot of other people in their industry. They see everyone as competitors and they're not really forming a network of individuals that they can lean on for those types of questions. Um, They're not engaging financial advisors early enough. So a lot of business owners are fun because they'll say, hey, all my assets are in the business. I don't have anything personally. And so they think they don't need a financial advisor. It's like, no, we would absolutely help you build a plan with very little personal assets so that if you ever sold or succeeded the the business down, we could help you walk through that. And we would be there to support you in that process. Um, So I would say that, and then also making sure they had a strong legal support and tax support. So just a CPA and an M&A attorney that knows how to do this or whether it's a business broker instead, I think that's fantastic to just have those connections ahead of time. Absolutely agree with you, man. I mean, I wish more of the owners that came through our doors were prepared properly um, just because I've seen it go, you know, unfortunately, I've seen it go really bad for some folks who we weren't able to work with. Um, I've also seen it go really well for people who were well prepared. And and some people do get lucky as well. That's another element to this, you know, that maybe they're just they haven't placed a super big emphasis on it. But because of the way they've run their companies, they they can sell well. And, and maybe that's not luck. Right. But um, I think it's just really important, uh, especially for maximizing the value and, and ex- you know, exposure that you can get. Um, one of the things you said there stood out to me, John, and it was it's kind of how we met 
you know, now that I think about it, um, through, through Jed Byrne, who runs the, um, the top five newsletter in Raleigh. But one of the things you, you said was just networking and, and seeing everybody as competitors, right. As a business owner, that kind of stood out. What, give me some of your thoughts on that. Cause you obviously are not the same way. You're, you're pretty, I don't want to say you're an open book, but like you, you're, you're very giving with your information and your knowledge and, and you know, expertise, et cetera. How do you, how did you get through that yourself? I mean, I assume a lot of people start kind of at, out at that point where they kind of see everybody as competitors. They don't want to share too much knowledge. And then you sort of get to this point where you realize, Oh, wow. Like, you know, networking with people, it really brings me a lot. You know, I, I might be giving sure, but it really is a helpful tool. Sure. So um, we've kind of always been, you know, initially our team got in the habit of we would connect with other advisors, whether they be independent or with a corporation that we just maybe admired them, saw them on a list somewhere. And then we would go out and visit them and ask if we could pay for their time to sit and understand how they run their company. And every time we did it, we would come back with new ideas for us. And then also ideas that we realized we didn't want to implement, but we're glad we learned about. Yeah. Um, and so that helped us grow very fast because in our current market, because we were using outside market influence, we were able to say, well, they're not doing that here in Raleigh. Let's just figure out how to do that better here. Um, but then when we got involved in EO, they're all local, but they're all different types of businesses. And what I like about it is they really have the same business issues, but they're, they're just in different industries. So they were a place to go for our HR issues or like our growth capacity issues. And it gave us a network to connect with people that maybe they they sell a tech product or maybe they're involved in consumer retail or whatever it may be, but they're able to relate on a managerial and business ownership level. And that really helped us. And so EO is because it's structured and there's meetings and you know you have a kind of consistent pace of when you're gonna get together, it just helped us separate time to connect with those people and ask questions. And that helps us a lot in our growth. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think uh, it's interesting because that's how my the founder of the company I work with now um, started. He started by going out to competitors and just buying them lunch or whatever, and just saying, "Hey, can I can I see how you guys do things?" I'm, I'm learning this. It was in d- different geographies and such, but it was extremely valuable for him. Practically speaking, how did you? start those conversations? Was it a cold call? Was it a referral through somebody that you might've known? How did you, did you already have those relationships because of your, your time, um, you know, at Merrill? Like how, how did that work? Most of them were straight cold. Um, so I would just send an email if I got an email address and ask if we can, you know, introduce myself. I'd follow up with a second if I didn't hear anything, but most of the people I found that are really successful in any industry, they're usually really willing to help someone or answer questions. Um, and that's part of why they are successful. And so I think that was the first part. EO, similarly, because we're connected with the network, we have that that way to say we're a part of EO, we're a sponsor, a partner, can we help? And uh, just get to know you. And that's that's been a good lead on. Got it. Okay. Very interesting, man. Um, so, so another thing we talked about on our pre-call was uh, just kind of the situation where you've got this young guy or young gal inheriting shares of a private business that's sold. Uh, when they and then they come to you and say, "John, you know what do I do, man? I, I I've been involved in the business a little bit, but this is a pretty big step for me." Um, just maybe talk through some stories you found or just things that you've you've experienced in the past with that. Yeah. So like taking it just a step back further. So if you think about a lot of cases, a business owner, when they're working with us, um, one of the things that they're concerned about with an exit is how it impacts the people that they're closest to in their company. And so we would always encourage them, like connect us with your company. We'll come out and do just a a presentation to the associates. We'll meet one-on-one with the people that hold private stock and we'll start setting up financial plans with them so that when the time comes and if the time comes, it's really easy for them to see what the implications are. So examples of this, 
um, you know, someone that we've worked with for a while, let's say they called us and said, Hey, we, we've got an offer to hit that point home. I'm always amazed where a client would say, you know, Hey, my company's worth 20 million and I, I'm not going to sell it for anything less. And I'd always go back to them and be like, if the offer is 19, let me show you a plan of what that means for you. Do you really want to push hard on that? Or is it just, you feel it's worth that much? And so we help people make those decisions where they know what's the value of the company, but then what's the value to me? And should I actually make this decision? What is this going to do for my life and my personal goals? So I would say that's that's point number one. Any business owner, yes, they should know the value of their company, but they should also know that if they were to transact at different values, what does that mean for them? And have they planned through how to manage that money so that one day they don't just get a check or a deposit in their account and realize, now what do I do? Um, so we do that for anybody in the company that has a private ownership of the company. And so this is like, this is, this could be your salespeople. This could be your, your heads of departments that you through benefits plans have said, Hey, you've got shares in the company they're currently worth nothing, but if we ever sell, it could be worth something. And so we would go through and set up plans with those people. And then this could be an individual that we've worked with for years that they don't have a lot of money with us at all. And then one day they do. And so they've just gotten used to the idea of in their plan, always showing a situation of, okay, but if the company sells, yeah, I would lose my job, but here's what I would have. And I would like to be able to take time off and enjoy that. And then I'd like to be able to go back in an industry that maybe pays less, but, and I've helped them walk through that decision. So when the time comes for an exit, it's really easy to contact those people and say, Hey, this was in your plan. We now know what the valuation is. We now know how it impacts you. Let's go ahead and start talking about your next steps as we go through this process of selling and yeah, go there. And how do you bridge that gap between what people think their company is worth? Maybe it's an emotional consideration and what it actually is worth. How do you bridge that when you're, talking to them. I mean, one thing that just is kind of an undercurrent of all of this that we we maybe failed to really dig d- deeper on in this show, but it's just, this is all really about trust building and relationships, right? At the end of the day, you're, you're selling trust and you're delivering a service, at least in my opinion, right? Like you're getting close to these people's financial statements, which is some of the most personal thing you could, you could be talking with them about, right? How do you bridge that gap in, in valuation for these owners? Yeah. Yeah. So like, you know, my role is certainly not to make the decision for the client and not to guilt them by making the decision that we would not make, but it's to educate them so that when they make the decision, they know the implications. So if the client comes in and they say, Hey, I'm not selling for less than X. And you know, here's the offer that I've been given. And I think it's too low. I'm going to cheer them on, but I'm going to make sure they know what they're giving up so that they just feel educated to say no to something. Um, And my job isn't to value the company. So of course we're always going to utilize the CPA firm to do evaluation or there's business valuators out there. They're going to go through a due diligence process and the final offer will be given. And when they receive that offer, they'll be able to say, you know, is it in alignment with what I believe? Is it more than what I thought or is it less? And and that's always going to be up to the business owner. But I feel that decision is so much easier to make if the owner has been able to see a plan of if they sold it for X, what would happen to them? Um, and specifically the details of the plan. So what's the cash out up front? Are they going to get shares in the new company? Is it performance earnouts, which we've seen go badly so many times? Um, you know, so we want to walk them through, Hey, just cause they offered 10 million doesn't mean you're getting all that. We have yeah. to you know, be concerned about what's still in the, the next company or what still has to be an earnout, and let's not plan hundred percent on those items and see what happens. Okay. That makes a lot of sense, man. Um, and obviously I'm interested in that cause I, we do this every day, sort of just, you know, valuing companies, transacting companies. And so for me that you're kind of on the way earlier side of it. So it's just a very interesting, um, 
so so wrapping up here this is a fun question uh we've talked about this a little bit but cryptocurrency is going crazy right now and people are getting really into it um and it's kind of having this big up and down effect what is your opinion on crypto i mean does it make sense for some people to invest in maybe the average everyday person and you know what do you think about it how are you making recommendations regarding crypto today yeah, no, it is. It's it is definitely the hot topic question, and rightfully so. It's a it's a really cool and interesting concept. Um, it is definitely this this leading industry that we're looking at to say is this makes sense for the general population. We've seen a lot of major wirehouses and brokers start to offer abilities to buy into crypto now. Um, we're starting to see more regulation around it, which is what investors want to see. And so we know that this is something that's going to be incorporated in the future. That being said, um, I really love, and I know Warren Buffett was not the biggest proponent of, of Bitcoin and those things, but he did he did say it very well in terms of the type of investing that you're doing. So the reality is when you're investing in stock, you're hoping that the underlying performing asset, the company, is going to perform well, and they're going to have earnings and profit that drive up your stock price. And that's a very, um, very easy relationship to understand. But currently, when you're investing in crypto, although there's scarcity involved, your hope is that somebody in the future pays more for what you have than they would pay for it now. And there's not this underlying asset or, or profitability with it that you're looking at to say, what should this be worth five years from now if things stay uh, the way they're going. And so because of that, we don't feel the average person should be investing in it because there's no way for us to really forecast. There's no history for us to see. And when we're talking about investing towards someone's personal goals, the level of risk that it would take to put into an asset like that typically doesn't match up. Um, now, we do have clients that when they call and they say, hey, John, I, you know, I got this bonus payout or we just sold this property and we have extra cash flow and I want to invest in crypto, should I do it? We are able to say, well, everything you're doing is matching with your plan currently. So if you wanted to take some assets off the table to do this really aggressive, risky thing, then go for it. I mean, you can do it, but you need to do it with the mentality that if it's completely gone in a year or less, then that's the risk you were willing to take. And it's not impacting the personal goals to you. Um, so I think just yeah. understanding why you're investing, understanding what's behind that investment. And if you're just like, if you think it's too complex, you really shouldn't be in it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You're going to ruffle a lot of, fe a lot of feathers saying that, John, but <laughs> I agree with you, man. I, if, for me, I, I think about it the same way. I think about it as very, very risky just because it's not time tested necessarily, right? Unlike gold, silver, et cetera. Um, but I think that there's probably going to be a lot of millionaires made from it. Uh, there already are, but you know, it's just a, it's a question of risk. Are you comfortable investing in something that you're not 100% sure about? And nothing is 100%, right? I'm not saying that, but you know, it's just a, it's definitely a riskier play, I would say. Um, yeah. And it's a lot easier when you define your personal goals, right? So if I was going to take my retirement or point. some of my assets and say, should I invest in, in a cryptocurrency? What am I risking? I'm risking the ability to send my kids to college. I'm risking the ability to retire at the age I want to and travel with my wife. And I'm not willing to risk that for something that hasn't been time tested. And I hope people do become millionaires from it. I hope it's awesome. And I hope 10 years from now, the conversation says, hey, there's a really easy regulated way to get into this new currency and idea and, and all for it. But until that time happens, it's not worth it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so John, we talked about a lot of topics today, which I'm, I'm really thrilled about. I appreciate you being on um, a couple of final questions for you. Uh, really quicker ones. Where can people go in terms of resources if they want to learn more about investing? And, um, you know, one example is like totally total money main makeover from Dave Ramsey. Uh, it's a great book, right? Where can people go for to learn more about this sort of thing? Sure. So, 
Um, I, it depends on what the person wants, right? So if the person listens to this and says, I'm at a point where I just want to go to ask somebody my personal questions, you just come right to our website, the rhawealth.com. You can contact us through there. We actually throw our calendars on there as well. So if you want to set aside time to talk to any of the advisors there and just have an intro call, um, people do not get billed or feed with us until we've actually finished their planning and, and given recommendations and investment management. So everybody that comes to us will have full on conversations and, and leave with answers before they're ever charged anything, which we think is important. Um, but if they are interested in investing, I mean, we utilize the research with Morningstar a lot. We think Morningstar is a great landing hub. Um, we think that that's you know, the best place to start comparing investments and utilizing tools. And so we do that in our own planning. And if you want to see a plan run, let us know and we'll set you up with a client portal and um, help you have a conversation about how to view your assets in a way that's personal to you. Perfect. I think we'll end it there, John. I appreciate you being on the show, man. Yeah. Thanks, John. Thanks so much. This episode of Owner Operated is sponsored by On Tops Roofing, a family-owned and operated business servicing the Triangle area of North Carolina since 1991. With a long-standing commitment to quality work and customer service, OnTops has grown to be recognized as one of the most respected roofing contractors in the Triangle. They offer roofing work, window replacements, siding replacements, and gutter installation services. Check them out at ontopsroofing.com. That's ontopsroofing.com. Thank you for listening to Owner Operated, conversations with small business millionaires. Be sure to sign up for my weekly newsletter at jonapalone.com, where I share the takeaways from each episode and share any resources or tips I find valuable. And if you like the episode, please leave a review on iTunes. It really does help the show grow and send it to a friend that you think would benefit from it. Thanks so much.